This is Minor Revisions, a podcast from the editors of the journal Politics and Space, published by SAGE. I'm Eugene McCann, Managing Editor and Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Each episode of Minor Revisions features the authors of a published article unpacking their publication and revealing some secrets behind it. They tell stories of how their article came about, how they collaborated with editors and reviewers to write it, what decisions they made about literatures to draw upon, and what challenges they overcame along the way. The podcast provides personal insight into the often mysterious process of publishing academic articles. We hope it will help you publish your research with only minor revisions. In this, our first episode, Louisa Biwasiewicz, a professor of European Governance at the University of Amsterdam, and Sabrina Stallone, a doctoral student at the University of Bern, discuss the process of researching, writing and publishing their article called Focalising New Fascism, Right Politics and Integralisms in Contemporary Italy. The article was published in 2020 in Volume 38, Issue 3 of Politics in Space. It's currently free to access on the journal's website via the link in this episode's show notes. The article focuses on Casa Pound, a prominent group in Italian far-right politics. Luisa and Sabrina examine Casa Pound's extreme discursive and material politics around claims of national community and the othering of racialised migrants. As we'll hear, the origins of the research project were somewhat serendipitous, and its conceptualisation brought together their respective interests in political geography and anthropology. They discussed their decision-making when writing the paper, how they chose to submit it to politics and space, how they dealt with reviews and the editorial process, and their hopes for what influence their article may have. So my name is Luisa Biorosiewicz, I'm a political geographer, I teach European studies at the University of Amsterdam and I've been working for a while now on questions of migration, questions of borders, looking mostly at what the EU does, what EU institutions do, but in the past couple of years um, I thought it was much more interesting to look at what was happening inside European cities, so in a sense how these policies were touching down and especially reactions to Um, migration and integration um, policies and politics. Yeah, so my name is Sabrina Stallone and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Bern and enrolled at the Interdisciplinary Graduate School for Gender Studies there. So I would say that my research interests largely revolve around urban politics and future-making processes in cities. And I'm particularly interested in, look, in looking into gendered perspectives on transformation processes like gentrification, globalization, and the concept of the neoliberal city, which is what I'm doing for my dissertation fieldwork right now, working in Zurich. Um, and so far, research has taken me to Palestine, Israel, and precisely Italy. And this is where where we met for the first time at the Winter School Cities Borders Identities that Luisa co-organized. And in a sense, um, you know, our, our meeting there was also the birthplace of this paper. 
because we met, um, as Sabrina mentioned, at this PhD school organized in Rome by the Dutch Institute in Rome, looking at you know, various ways in which borders manifest themselves in cities. And one of the ideas um, behind the course was to literally you know, kind of take this class of mostly um, people who are not coming from anthropology or geography backgrounds, so actually doing field work, teaching in the city was kind of weird to most you know, of the historians, um, people from you know, comparative literature and so on. And um, the students actually themselves suggested a series of possible field sites where we could kind of think about questions of bordering, about the ways in which migration was transforming Rome. And that's how we came to Casa Pound, not just as a movement, but to Casa Pound um, as a site, which, you know, as we mentioned, drove the paper. So our paper, I would say, is concerned with the role and activities and, and the positioning of new fascist movements uh, in contemporary Europe. But our specific focus, as Luisa was saying, lies with Casa Pound, and, which is one of the most spectacularized uh, movements in the political spectrum of the Italian, Italian far right, I would say. Um, at the time of the general elections in 2018, which is where the bulk of our research sort of um, where we situated, but also today, and not only in Italy, but also beyond it, as we saw in a lot of media representations at the time. So what we do in the article is precisely look at these ways in which Casa Pound refocalizes issues of precarization and migration in Italy by making itself visible in urban as well as rural spaces. And we argue that while the actual institutional political impact of Casa Pound and said general elections was minor, its interventions helped more respectable politics politics or political parties, as we call them in the, in the paper, to center issues like the alienated Italian subject in a neoliberalized world in their policies and discourses. So Casa Pound defines itself as fascists of the third millennium or new fascists. And on the one hand, they draw their lineage, their legacy directly from you know, the old fascist parties and the founder of, of this movement was actually very active in the youth organization of the former fascist party of the Movimento Sociale Italiano. But what is, I think, very interesting about them is precisely that while they draw on that history very ably, so they use it when they need to, they also present themselves very much as a social movement and they speak the language of a social movement. They use the tactics of a social movement, whether it's squatting, um, other kind of direct actions, and I think that's also what drew us to them. So the fact that when, you know, when we went um, to visit their headquarters and we spoke to some of the activists, I mean, the language that they were using, I mean, to me at least, that was what, what was in a sense most distressing. I mean, this was a language of social justice, you know, kind of framed and phrased in a very particular way, but, you know, it, it was that. And they um, will say, you know, quite explicitly, um, for us, it's very much about a Gramscian approach, a metapolitical approach to you know, large-scale 
also cultural transformation. This is how they work. They work very much, for example, focusing on schools and not just at the university level, but also looking at younger kids, music clubs and so on. So doing the kind of things that other political parties once did, certainly in the Italian context, you know, the kind of after school clubs, whether, you know, of the Christian democracy or of the communist party. And I think they're trying to do that, combining that with social movement tactics and especially with kind of autonomous tactics, which in the Italian context are very, you know, kind of well um, developed. For the integralisms, and Sabrina, maybe you want to add some, something more there. We didn't want to kind of place them simply directly in the literature on new fascisms or on populisms, because we feel that on the one hand, they are something quite different. But we liked the idea of integralisms, which comes from the work of anthropologist um, Doug Holmes, because it allows us to kind of point out what, what Sabrina was already saying in the introduction. The fact that, yes, here we're talking, we're looking at um, Casa Pound, but what we're interested in is this wider set of political ideas. And we cite towards the end of the piece the work of Umberto Eco, who noted already, I think, in the early 90s when he first wrote this piece on ur-fascism, that we need to think about this kind of broader set of what he called cultural habits, ways of thinking, um, ways of understanding issues. That's what real fascism is about. And so, you know, Casa Pound is not that relevant, you know, kind of in, in electoral terms um, uh, of a political actor. But it is what they enable. It's you know what what they allow to happen, and so you know kind of thinking of the ways in which the far right, so Casa Pound, will work together with the not so far right and with the center that takes up these ideas very ably. I think when we when we think about the motivations behind working on this paper, I think our, our initial uh, memory is probably us being extremely pissed off <laughs> and not be, being very just having a very strong effective response to this visit that we get, did together to the headquarters of Casa Pound during this winter school um, in their headquarters which is a squatted building in um, Esquilino in Rome. Um, yeah Luisa what would you say about maybe this discomfort also prior to our visit? Absolutely. And so, you know, as, as we were mentioning, the the idea behind this class was to pick a series of kind of field sites. And um, a couple of the students suggested that we go visit Casa Pound. I mean, how do I feel as the co-director of the course bringing a group of international students, let's go visit the fascists. But I was convinced and, um, you know, thought, okay, you know, let's see what this is going to be like. And, um, but I, you know, I, I think, I mean, I can speak for myself. I already went with uh, not a chip on my shoulder, but a very kind of uncomfortable attitude. We were given this, um, this person as a guide who is their international kind of uh, affairs coordinator with the improbable name, Sebastian Magnificat, who you know, can't possibly be the man's real name, even though he's Quebecois. And he was so smooth, you know? Um, and I think so already there, um, I think, as Sabrina was saying, this kind of this discomfort, this, you know, kind of, okay, what do we do with this? Is this right that we go and listen to what these guys have to say? And we got a performance. We got an incredible performance. They took us around for over two hours. Um, and besides uh, Sebastian, who was giving us, you know, a tour of the building, explaining, 
what the organization was doing, telling us about the surrounding neighborhood, various other characters came into the scene. And we weren't quite sure if that was staged, if it wasn't staged. You know, this happening in the entrance to this building that is festooned with, you know, kind of the names of every possible um, uh, despicable character that you can think of and some other you know, kind of um, improbable ones. But then since you were asking about the motivations behind turning these, turning this experience into an article, we also asked ourselves, wouldn't we participate in sort of an, an ulterior visibilization of this movement if we decided to write an article about them? And I think this was sort of working through this difficulty or through this question um, was central in us really, yeah, thinking about how we want to write and what kind of literature we would look for to, to talk about it and how we then ended up really focusing on this on, on, on these tax, tactics of representation rather than the representation itself. And I think, you know, um, I'm thinking back to our reactions right afterwards. So after we came out of the tour, we felt we kind of all needed a drink and to sit down and kind of think about what had just happened to us. And we all had very different reactions. I mean, the course had um, PhD students from everywhere. So both from Europe, but also from Latin America and beyond. But I think the the one comment that really struck me and also kind of got us to think, well, maybe we should write something about this was um, a colleague from Egypt. And what she said, she said, you know what, listening to these guys, especially, you know, kind of in the ways in which they're using the language of social justice, they're talking about, you know, what we are doing for the people, they remind me of the Muslim Brotherhood. And we as Egyptian academics have always, you know, kind of discounted that saying, oh, you know, we don't mix, we're not going to go talk to those guys. She said, you really should, you really should, you should listen, you should, you know, you should do something with this. And so um, our colleague Nermin has a, a big part in this as well. You know, when we left Rome, we thought, okay, we should do something with this. And I don't think at that point we were quite sure what. There were various things that I think troubled us. So we, you know, we had that effective response. We were troubled by the ways in which they were, you know, we could see they were presenting themselves also in the Italian media very ably, the way they presented themselves to us. And then um, in the months right after, suddenly you see, bang, front page of the Guardian, front page of the New York Times. Here are our guys, you know, and with these articles that really made them out to be as, you know, as these articles were announcing the black wave that was sweeping Italy, were in effect, I mean, you know, really not a sizable movement at all. Very capable in presenting themselves. So I think, you know, a push also came um, from that. But in terms of, you know, kind of then thinking, okay, how do we do this? How do we um, make this into something that can be written into a paper? That took some thinking. Yes, definitely. I remember our having come back from, from Rome, our first few meetings in, in Amsterdam in Luisa's office, just still trying to chew through these effective responses. And then in this second step, turn them into, into, observations that then turned into analysis right like we had this sort of inductive process of really working with these with these with this performance that we got that, that was presented to us but also with these 
as you were saying, Louisa, with these, these mediatic representations and how we sort of try to piece those together. So I think in the beginning, our process was really much, much about, yeah, piecing these little, these little vignettes together and seeing how we could, how we could then turn them into, into an article. We were, you know, we were thinking of what they were doing in the city um, or, and how they were presenting it. So how they were using city spaces in a very kind of um, interesting way, you know, so whether through squatting or other forms of presence and kind of takeover or recovery of urban spaces. But I think, you know, um, Sabrina, you especially, you know, were insisting on this, you know, kind of the need to look at this question of visibilization or actually what you are calling focalization, which was a term that was completely unknown to me. Um, so it was also kind of trying to bring together kind of different ways of thinking about the same thing and create some sort of conceptual framework for what we wanted to say, which, which very much had to do with this over-visibilization. And I think that's how we settled on, okay, what is the thing that we want to say here? Yeah, so even though now I'm doing a, a PhD in social anthropology, at the time I was doing an MA in cultural analysis when we started working on this. So the literatures and how, how, they, were, how they were sort of put together um, into a theoretical framework um, coming from different disciplines. I think that, yes, it, that really did play a big role. And, and as I was saying, this, this master's program that I was in really had a big focus on interdisciplinarity, which sometimes is a concept that is not really easy to understand, let alone implement. And for me, this, this um, exercise in thinking from different perspectives or from different disciplines about this, this movement um, was, was really helpful. And for me, it was really like an exercise in interdisciplinarity. So um, this is where I brought in this, this, this concept of, of focalization, right? Or refocalization, which essentially comes from narratology into cultural studies, but it is really about sort of just rather than it is rather than about the what of a story it is concerned with the how how is something narrated and how are we as readers or as viewers how is our gaze directed towards certain things rather than others right so this was a concept that for me was sort of resonating so much with with the work done by Casa Pound um, and especially because another um, a, a professor of mine at, at the University of Amsterdam, Esther Peren, had just used this, this um, concept to think about sort of the refocalization of irregular migration in Europe and thinking of regimes of visibility through which migration has been seen and represented in, in, in European as well as global media and politics. So um, I really thought that this was going to be something that could be really helpful to us and then brought together with integralisms that we heard a little bit about earlier on. Um, it seems really, yeah, it seemed, it seemed ideal to think these two together, especially because in integralisms, one of the, one of the aspects that, that, that was really resonating with us with respect to Casa Pound was uh, the expressionism, right? This idea of the, the metapolitics and the representation of, of a political idea um, rather than the, the policy implementation. Um, and so these two concepts went, went very well together to think about our arguments on over-visibilization. 
And I think the, you know, to me, kind of discovering this idea of focalization, I really liked it because it really added something more than just kind of focusing on questions of visibility and invisibility of what is made visible and what is not. Because what Casa Pound was doing, both in you know, the performance they gave us, but certainly in all of their activities and the ways in which they engage with the media, is using the figure of the migrant to precisely refocalize debates to say, you know, this is, you know, kind of the culprit for the degradation in cities. Um, this is, you know, kind of the figure that, you know, does this for a series of other, you know, kind of um, political, um, you know, kind of and, and economic transformations. So um, that, that was really, really useful. You know, we could lie and say that it was magically seamless and smooth. There were a lot of drafts. I think 27 in all. I was trying to go <laughs> through my <laughs> through my folders. Um, and you know, the difficult thing was that we were, you know, uh, challenged um, with you know the empirical material that we had because when we went and did our quote fieldwork, we did not know it was fieldwork at the time. I mean, we were there as part of this course, and you know, we had recorded. They were very happy to be recorded. So we had a full recording of the entire visit. Um, you know, we took some notes, our colleagues took notes, um, but you know, that already limited things and we could not go back once more um, to follow up. Although, you know, kind of the rest of our kind of uh, data came uh, by looking precisely as Sabrina was saying at the representations because that was such a crucial part of what interested us. But in terms of, you know, kind of um, making this into a coherent narrative, one of the things that really helped, in fact, was um, both kind of working through various drafts. And that was um, extremely useful because I think we, we both had our way of making sense of what we were saying that, you know, maybe necessarily wouldn't have made sense to anybody reading the paper um, out, outside of, you know, our... our uh, um, our own mind. So I think and for me, that's always wonderful about writing with somebody else um, and playing with these ideas and thinking, you know, are we being clear um, with also kind of the concern? Because I think, you know, underlie, I mean, we've already mentioned this, but I think we had that this very strong political, ethical concern throughout. How are we going to say this um, without, you know, once more, not only giving these guys more visibility and more power than they actually have, but how do we present this without spectacularizing, without, you know, making it into something that it is really not, and yet saying something interesting? Yes, I mean, these were a lot of conversations that we had precisely about that. For, for instance, also with the, since we were talking about representation, we asked ourselves, well, should we um, show any images? Should we include any images in this, in this article? And then through these conversations and through these drafts that were sent back and forth, realizing that, no, maybe we shouldn't. And maybe this, like a, a very detailed description of what is going on in their, in their interventions in the city, for example, will suffice because otherwise we will be really mimicking what was going on in the media at the time. And so I think it took a lot of drafts um, of, of just adding things and then removing things again until we we really got to our common stance. Thinking back to the first time we presented it actually in the department here in Amsterdam, which had colleagues from a variety of disciplines. So lawyers, economists, a couple of anthropologists, um, sociologists, literature people. 
And um, we can tell you we left feeling completely misunderstood and thought, what, <laughs> what did they get out of it? But we were told but by both the anthropologists in the room that our original title for the paper, which we really liked, which was the folklore of fascism, was just a no-go. We could not use the term folklore. To us, it made perfect sense because they were very much performing the fascists. They dressed like fascists. They behaved like fascists. And we thought it was, you know, a really great way of capturing this kind of performative aspect. But, you know, that was struck down immediately. Um, but it was very useful. I mean, apart from, you know, kind of stripping us of this really cool title that we really liked, um, it made us think, okay, how do we get this point across? You know, how do we, you know, explain maybe to people who don't know the Italian context, um, who maybe are not familiar at all with the literature on integralisms, populisms, and so on. Um, so that, you know, that, that, was, that was definitely uh, very helpful. Um, we presented it also later on. Um, and there, I think, you know, the kind of the, the important comments we got was, well, you know, this isn't that unique. Because that's, of course, you know, a comment that you get, I think, at every paper presentation. It's like, well, you, you think this is a unique case, but really. But that also makes you think. And okay, so, you know, what is unique about this? Why is this important? It's a challenge um, to write about contemporary events because they tend to evade you. So, you know, we would write something and then open the newspaper the next day and say, ah, you know, they did something else. Um, so that, that makes it much more difficult. But I think, you know, we had, apart from, you know, so like, you know let's, let's, let's get this thing submitted. It was really important to us to get it out um, while it was still politically salient, which it continued to be just, you know, kind of in different ways. But I think that was the thing that was also pushing us on. Yeah, I agree. That was definitely one of the bigger challenges that I felt while writing it, that we were constantly not forced but there was stuff happening about in the in the sort of in the galaxy of Casa Pounds that we want that we that we thought was important to add to our paper but we were already at a stage maybe where we should have already been working on sort of of refining the last little bits and pieces of the paper but there was still new thing there were still new things happening so I think that was a also as, an, as, as a less or not experienced um, academic writer, I think that was one of the bigger um, issues that I had with it. Because in the end, I think we had, we had over 30 uh, footnotes that we thought, okay, well, yeah, this is all important, but how are we gonna fit all of this into it? And what of this is really actually important to the argument that we're trying to make? Um, and yeah, that was, that was difficult, I think. At some point, we just needed to say, okay, this is, this is it. I was also finishing my MA thesis at the time. So I think that was also part of the reason why we said, okay, this is it. We need to stop here. So um, it's, it, you know, the, the journal kind of came to mind immediately because I was on the editorial board um, of EPC already um, uh, when we thought of submitting the papers. I knew what sort of work the journal was publishing, and I thought it would be kind of the perfect home for it, given, given the topic. Um, I subsequently became one of the handling editors um, of the journal. This was already after the, the publication process had run its course. Um, and I think that was very fortunate because, you know, I think it's much easier to understand what sort of paper 
you should be writing for a journal if you are familiar with the journal. Um, if you know more or less what kind of work it publishes, but not only, um, you know what sort of you know people are reading it, what sort of people will be reviewing your work, um, what kind of work the editors themselves are you know are are writing. Um, and I think that's really important. And I think in conversations also with Sabrina, I mean, we realize, you know, how much of that you take for granted. So, you know, I mean, I grew up academically as a geographer. So for me, you know, um, certain journals make sense. I, I, you know, can kind of uh, have a sense of, you know, what is expected of, you know, and not just in terms of style and, you know, who you're supposed to cite, but just the general kind of spirit that drives certain journals. I think it's much more difficult um, if you don't have that kind of um, academic um, trajectory biography. Yes, exactly. I think this is a really important point. Um, because as a graduate student, I think that depending on your, as you were saying, on your own biography, um, you you find yourself in front of this of this huge black box that is academic publishing, and you don't really know how to go about it and how to approach it. And for me personally, coming from an interdisciplinary background, we were given during my MA to a certain extent a little guidance on, on how to approach academic publishing, but in terms of the papers that we should, that, or yeah, the, the publications that we should look into, that was much more complex as we, as we were a very diverse group and were interested in a lot of different things. So, I mean, of course, graduate journals there can be, a, can be of huge help, but with this article, for me, it was, of course, central to, to have to, to be in this process with Louisa, who, um, so it, it, it didn't even come up as a question, okay, where should we, should, should we publish this? Because Louisa already had so many ideas and po politics and space was one of the, one of the first ones to come up. So, yeah, I think that while it, of course, it would be it would be very useful and very helpful to to look into the editor's work and look at the the types of papers that were published in a certain um, journal. I think there is also a little extra step that is not so easy to to just make on your own as a graduate student, especially for myself being a first generation university graduate. Um, it's just the idea that, that something that you wrote and came up with, for example, during graduate school could end up in an academic journal. Um, yeah, I think we, we really depend on, on, on professors, lecturers, or um, yeah, just mentors in the, in the academic world. And I think it's incredible. I mean, how much of this we take for granted in the sense that you know, it's like, okay, well, this is the way this journal operates. This is, you know, this, this kind of paper. Oh yeah. Okay. This is where I'm going to go. Where you assume that somehow that's, you know, something you've absorbed from the air, which of course you haven't. Yes, exactly. I really think that um, for another paper that I got published during my, or right after my MA, it was, it was also a, a lecturer that who came up to me and, and said something like, hey, this is a good paper. You should, we should workshop this and look, look at publication opportunities. You really, I think there is a, there is a certain 
moment where you really depend on these on these conversations that ideally would be initiated by by a mentor with your you know you have to be open for it of course but there needs to be sort of this first contact happening and and yeah I was really happy to have that with that other paper but also with with Louisa for this. So we were quite lucky because we only had one round of revisions and the reviewers um, miraculously seemed to agree on the major points. So, you know, our job was much easier than it sometimes is because we didn't have to, you know, kind of mediate between sets of reviews that said, you know, kind of diametrically opposed things. And we felt also very lucky to get strong guidance from the handling editor on you know, what really mattered, what really we should address. And I think that's, you know, another really important point to make is, um, you know, um, having that guidance. Because I think, you know, of course, with more experience, you get better at reading reviews and understanding what they mean and not, you know, um, I mean, sometimes you still feel shattered, but you know, kind of not taking them for, um, you know, kind of complete dismissal of your paper. Um, but I think in our case, we had gone through so many drafts, we had exposed ourselves to various people before in, you know, in presentations and otherwise. So we had been taken apart already um, at multiple stages. Um, but yes, yeah, Sabrina, um, I don't know if you want to add something <laughs> more to this. Yeah, I mean, for me, obviously this, this I'm, I'm, I'm not as, uh, as experienced or as seasoned in this process. So I had to sort of take it um, just as it came without having like a reference on, on how it should be, right? So you get these two reviews and um, and as you were saying, I was really happy to see that they didn't really contradict each other. But I think what was essential, as you were saying, was also this this filter that we got through the, the editor's comments, because that also gave me as an inexperienced writer an idea of, um, okay, what is really important about these reviews? You know, what is the sort of the distilled idea of how how to make this better and the role of the editor sort of as a mediator of these comments and of the yeah of these of, of these of this critique helps also in 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 yeah sort of unmaking this this idea that these reviewers are are um they're you know uh, just <laughs> there to get you or sort of there to sort of yeah to to make your your to stop your paper at a certain in, in a certain at a certain point in a process but really that this it's about generative critique right of making it better and about it being more of a conversation i think a good review makes you think about other things that maybe they're not mentioning but you think oh well you know but maybe i should have also thought about that so no that was definitely the case and i think as sabrina was saying you know kind of um th this is not you know kind of uh thinking that this is some sort of, you know, uh, punitive, um, you know, kind of teacher with a red pen kind of intervention, but a conversation about how the paper can be made better. Yeah, and I also think that it really helped me to, to come to, to have a better understanding of the imagined readership of the, of, of the paper because there it was it was yeah it was a, a really long process of figuring out okay what are the th things that we are going to mention and how much background information do we need to give not only about Casa Pound but really sort of 
taking very seriously and rigorously this idea of the genealogy of, of where they come from, also sort of to counteract this visibilization. And there, I think it was really useful to get comments on, you know, oh, this you can leave out and here we need more information. And this paragraph is really, you're, you know, you're repeating something that you were already saying in, in the introduction about this movement and sort of, yeah, getting, getting that into like a better shape that was really the work also of, of, of us reacting to these, to these reviews, I think. I mean, that was one thing that we did struggle with um, is the word length, because I think both of us tend to be quite, um, <laughs> I don't know, um, in Italian you say prolisi, verbose, and um, the journal very kindly, um, you know, allowed us to slide slightly over <laughs> the, the limit, but it was really hard. You know, precisely because you feel, you know, you need to give the background, you need to do this, you need to do that. So already cutting a paper, cutting 2000 words out of a paper is excruciating. And then if you have to really, you know, kind of turn it inside out, um, I think there too, having a co-author really helps. Um, yeah. Because, then, you know, and the, the, the other person can help you maybe, you know, I, and maybe because I, you know, I'm a very obstinate writer and I kind of you know, I think this is the way it's supposed to be and that's it. So having somebody who's able to do that with you and for you is really good. I agree. I think this was really helpful for me in dealing with, with reviewers' comments that, you know, at a, you, you have to be receptive to them, of course. And then there is a point where you, especially if you get reviews that are, that are mixed, right? One say, cut that section, and the other say, you need to keep that section at all costs. Then at some point, you also have to trust your, your own idea for that paper, for that piece. And I think working with Luisa was, was, was really helpful for that, because I, I don't think I could have had that... Um, yeah, that, that certainty, just if I, if I was working on my own. But I think that's, you know, that's exactly it. And I, and I don't think as reviewers, we do that enough is, you know, we, we make a list of the things that are wrong. I, I don't think I've ever seen a review that says, oh, you know, this is great. It's quite sufficient. You don't need to, you know, um, I mean, that, that reassurance saying, you know, this is fine. This is, it's not a critique. And people use very different models. Some people will you know, kind of send in the table to respond to reviewers' comments. Some people will make a list of bullet points. And some people will indeed write a couple of paragraphs, which I think makes it actually, you know, if, if, if I'm a reviewer, I'd rather read the explanation because I don't think most people will go through, you know, kind of uh, the, the sort of obsessive compulsive list that I would have compiled um, <laughs> some years ago detailing every comma. And you want to see how the big things have been addressed, but I think that's really hard. And it is, I think it's much harder actually to explain what your paper has done in narrative form than just write a bullet point list because that forces you to think, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing that's new. We submitted um, a document with track changes and then included a narrative description of the major things that we've changed. So it was a kind of mix. It was narrative with some bullet points <laughs> thrown in. And I think there, there might be a difference in, in how different Englishes are perceived, right? So you can be very proficient in a language and still have certain codes or certain, um, yeah, certain expressions that you lack. And I think that's, def I mean, I haven't experienced it myself, but 
Um, I know from colleagues that that can be an issue and there can be anxieties connected to um, to publishing in English and sort of giving in to, to the pressure of publishing in English. I think that's, you know, it's, it's a really important question because even though, you know, um, neither of us are native in the native sense, <laughs> English speakers, we've both done our education in English. And so we, I think, um, you know, that is our working language. Um, I think it's, it's much more than just a question of the, you know, kind of the language itself. It's a question of various academic languages. And, and I think looking at different journals and different disciplines, um, I think some are much more open to different, you know, styles, forms of English. I don't know what to call it properly. Um, and I think that's something, you know, that, that I hope journals can work towards to, you know, kind of to be open to different, I mean, if, whether it's, you know, kind of a rhetorical style, for example, the way you present your argument. So you may be, you know, completely, you know, kind of fluent in academic English, but, you know, the way you present um, your thoughts, your argument, you structure your conceptual framework will be very different from a kind of classical Anglo structure of a paper. Um, and I think, you know, journals are getting better at, you know, kind of opening up to that kind of diversity. Um, but I think, as Sabrina was saying, it's much more than just about the question of, you know, knowing which words to use and having proper grammar. I think it really, you know, also has to do with the way, um, yeah, you, you present your argument and what is considered the right way to present an academic argument. Yeah, I think it's partly the different academic cultures that, that sort of differ, yeah, differentiate over these, these, these structures, but it's also the disciplines, right? So it's, it's also about where do you expect to be read and where do you expect to publish? Um, because having had sort of this socialization into a lot of different disciplines, when I look at how my um, anthropologist colleagues sort of begin a paper with, a, with an anthropological vignette, um, and thinking about how how different it would be to start a paper in in, in literary studies or in cultural studies even um, I think that there obviously this 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 variety could could just confuse could just be confusing but it also sort of gives you an idea that multiple approaches can be possible and maybe it's something that also speaking to what you were saying earlier, Luisa, about or also confidence, it would be about also breaking up this, these ideas of how you have to structure a paper to get your point across. And how then again, this comes back to the process of reviewing, how much the reviewing can be seen as a, as a dialogue and as a conversation that can be responded to with a, with a more narrative, longer version of a, of a response to it sort of making a point for the structure rather than another. And I think that's, that's exactly it is, you know, how do you um, not just, you know, kind of simply be kind of pragmatic and say, okay, well, this is what the journal expects. This is the way I'm going to write, you know, to minimize any, you know, kind of potential issues, because I am assuming that the referees, you know, this is what they're going to pick up on. But there are so many ways, you know, to make um, a point. And also, you know, <laughs> also in the English language, also in a very kind of traditional, you know, kind of um, uh, Anglophone setting, um, 
but I think it, it is very much about thinking, oh, you know, I, I can do this. And I think things have changed, certainly in, in geography journals. I mean, people have become much more, um, I don't even want to use the word creative. I mean, they, they write in different ways. I mean, before, unless, you know, you're Alan Pred, you wrote a very standard paper. And, you know, and you wouldn't be able to get away with trying to be Alan Pred. I tried as a graduate student. I was very quickly knocked down. Those of you who don't know Alan Pred, go read his work because it's absolutely amazing and wonderful and was a great inspiration. But writing, um, you know, I'm not saying writing a paper in, you know, in verse, but in scenes, in snapshots, um, working with images and, you know, and there's also the limit of what journals will accept because, you know, there are word limits, but there are also limits, you know, to a paper that would be half text, half images. Um, but I think, um, you know, that's a very kind of important thing to consider. And kind of throwing, you know, if you feel that's the way you can make your argument much more persuasively is precisely writing something that's, you know, um, uh, equally reliant on, on graphics or on, on photographs, um, that should be possible. Yeah, so about our hopes um, for this article, which is a very beautiful way to, to put it. Um, so, I think that what is really what we may may have achieved with this article, and I don't, I, I mean, I haven't heard about so many people who have who have read it, so I haven't gotten so much feedback on it. Um, but um, I think that there is just this whole body of knowledge that we can contribute to that is about these these movements that are very that are very topical. You know, the the stuff that is happening. Um, um, all over Europe and all over the world. Um, the far-right movements and the new fascist movements are, you know, you, we, you could say on the rise, but what we were really concerned with was, was this idea of how are they made visible and who makes them visible and who decides what are, yeah, what are the, the things about them that we do see. So we hope that with this article, we contribute to an already existing um, body of work about these movements to show that these tactics of how a movement like this makes itself visible in a city or on, um, you know, or on a field in in, in the countryside would um, would be very important to deconstruct and not only to just give it the stage that that it that is often given in the media. So I think dealing with this idea of visibilization of these movements was sort of, yeah. The hope that we had for this article. And I think, um, unfortunately, uh, Casa Pound has not gone away. They have been evicted from their building um, that we visited, finally, but they're not going away. And in the next months, years, I think there was initially a hope that the pandemic would somehow do away with populisms. It seems to be only strengthening, at least in some places, you know, kind of the, the populist pulsions. And as, as I think as Sabrina was saying, I think what, what we really hoped was not to just draw attention to what's, you know, what these guys are doing, but how their ideas are being taken up and being made respectable. Um, and so the, the hope was not just, let's say, a kind of conceptual academic one, was, but also very much a political one to say, 
look, you know, this may be a, a movement that's not that relevant yet in electoral terms, but these ideas matter because they are very kind of dangerously attractive. And I think that's what struck us when we went to visit the headquarters and listened to these guys talk. You know, if you, um, you know, kind of edited out some of the other context and just had, you know, kind of sentences kind of taken here and there. I mean, they really are speaking a language of, you know, very selective um, justice, a language of rights. Um, and that's what draws um, young people, but not only young people to them. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the hope was, was very much um, a political one as well as an, as an academic one. And, you know, hopefully we, we did some of that. <laughs> That's a wrap for this episode of Minor Revisions. You've been listening to Luisa Bivasevich, a political geographer at the University of Amsterdam, and Sabrina Stallone, an anthropologist at the University of Bern, discussing their article, Focalising New Fascism. From Politics and Space, Volume 38, 2020, published by SAGE. The podcast is made possible with the support of Simon Fraser University's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Our theme music is by Conrad Urbaniak. Our graphic designer is Samantha Thompson. And I'm Eugene McCann. Please subscribe to Minor Revisions wherever you find your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Write a review, share with your friends and colleagues and consider assigning episodes to your students. Politics in Space is an international journal of critical, heterodox and interdisciplinary research into the political and the spatial, published by SAGE. The journal's editors are Luisa Bivasevich, University of Amsterdam, Patricia Daly, Oxford University, Alison Mounts, Wilfrid Laurier University, and Joe Painter, Durham University, and me. Find Politics and Space on the SAGE Journal's website and follow it on Twitter at EnvPlanC. That's at... E-N-V-P-L-A-N-C.